Well, let's uh, get into some uh, material. I guess if anyone listens to this on the internet, they'll get some little personal conversation with us as well. Um, let's uh, have prayer and uh, get into our material tonight. Father, we are grateful for uh, your word and uh, how accurate it is and how we can trust it. We're thankful that we can depend on that and uh, we are grateful for a course about bibliology that we can uh, just get more confident in uh, what you've given to us. We are grateful for everyone here tonight and we ask that you bless their lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen. We have been uh, into a major definition that was on the board last time and let me just read that one more time. God so supernaturally directed the writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, literary style, or personal feeling, His complete and coherent message to man was recorded with perfect accuracy. The very words of the original Scripture bearing the authority of divine authorship. We talked about uh, how the early church believed in that definition. This is really the orthodox view of Scripture. Christ believed in this definition. We're going to see what the Bible says about itself here in the next uh, couple of weeks. And Scripture teaches that uh, the Bible is uh, perfect and uh, bears divine authorship. So this is infallibility. It's without error. The word inerrancy is not a new word. Uh, as the uh, illustration last time, uh, we haven't moved. Uh, the liberals have moved. The moderates have moved. They have moved away from what the early church has always believed about Scripture. Now, inerrancy is also sometimes called verbal plenary inspiration. Uh, this is this is very important. Everybody used to believe in inspiration, and so if you said you believe in inspiration, they said yes. It went on, but now everybody says they believe in inspiration, and they kind of whisper to themselves uh, up to a point. And so there is some word games that many people play when it comes to inspiration. And so verbal plenary inspiration was uh, a term that uh, came into being some time back. But it is talking about verbal, of course, means word and uh Plenary means all or complete. And verbal plenary inspiration simply means that all 
of the words in the Bible were completely inspired by God. And uh, this is important because we as Orthodox conservative Christians believe that the very words were inspired, whereas people who are less Orthodox also will tell you they believe in inspiration, but not that the words were completely inspired. They believe the thoughts were inspired or the ideas of Scripture were inspired. And so this, again, is uh, kind of a game that some people uh, use. And so... They talk about inerrancy of purpose rather than inerrancy of content. And they get into inerrancy of result. They will usually say something like, I believe in inerrancy. I believe that the Bible is totally inspired in matters of faith. And then they'll usually put a period after the word faith. They won't say anything else. We, on the other hand, say something like this. We believe that the words of the Bible are inspired in matters of faith, history, geography, and even science. Whenever you hear a Christian or someone who uh, claims to be a believer most of them are teaching at Baylor. <laughs> uh, no, that's sort of a joke. But uh, there's a lot of uh, professors out there that will uh, say something like, I, I believe the Bible is inspired in matters of faith. But then when you push them a little bit, they will say, well, I don't believe that the Bible really is uh, the way they'll say it is, I don't think the Bible is a textbook for science. Well, of course it's not a textbook for science. Well, why don't you just say what you really mean? You don't think the Bible is accurate in matters of science. And they'll say, well, I guess that's what I believe. But as we're going to see, the Bible claims for itself to not deceive and to be perfect in these matters as well. We uh, mentioned the uh, definition of inerrancy, and that's a pretty complete definition. It's about five or six lines. It's one big, huge sentence. But when you throw that definition to a lot of people, they will say something like this. If you believe inerrancy to that degree, then you must believe in mechanical dictation. And I think we mentioned a, a week or two ago what mechanical dictation is. Mechanical dictation has nothing to do with verbal plenary inspiration. It has nothing to do with inerrancy. They're totally different. Yet, many people say they're one and the same. There is actually several 
theological textbooks out there written from uh, something other than a firm evangelical viewpoint that will usually have a section in the book called mechanical dictation. Then, in that section, they will describe verbal plenary inspiration. And uh, they will describe it totally incorrectly. And then they will easily refute. You can easily refute uh, mechanical dictation. The Bible doesn't teach that the Bible is a result of God speaking directly to the writers and the writers looking up to heaven and having a a pen and scroll in front of them and writing exactly word for word what God is dictating to them. Just like a uh, business executive would dictate a letter to his secretary. That's the way... Some believe we got our Bible. And people to the left of the evangelical persuasion believe that is what conservative Christians believe. You believe in mechanical dictation. Now we know, of course, that some places in the Bible, uh, God did tell the writers exactly what to write. And they did. We have that uh, with the Pentateuch. We have that uh, several places through Scripture. Those are, if you really study this out and really look carefully at where those places are, you find that that is a minority of places. It's not the vast number of, of examples here. Really, it's exceptions uh, to the rule. And so, liberals will uh, refute their made-up definition, and they say that inerrancy must be a mechanical process. Uh, inerrancy doesn't uh, believe that at all, and doesn't have to uh, have that uh, as, a, as a viewpoint. Some... Uh, believe that if God is going through writers, human people, it can't come out perfect. Because uh, humans, uh, when when, uh, God's message goes through human beings, it won't be pure coming out at the end. But... uh, God can use man to bring about the exact message he wants. That's not an issue, not a problem. So inerrancy does not mean mechanical dictation. And no real scholarly, conservative, evangelical, I don't think, uh, believes in mechanical dictation. I think uh, a couple of weeks ago we mentioned maybe one fundamentalist leader of uh, a couple of generations ago, a guy named John R. Rice. He actually believed in mechanical dictation. He thought that that was how we got our Bible. He even has several 
books out there with a chapter two on mechanical dictation, and he he holds to that position. He's one of the only real uh, Christian leaders that that does. Inerrancy also not only does it uh, demand that uh, mechanical dictation uh, is not right, uh, it also uh, it does not demand that the writers of Scripture be sinless or that they be free from the many erroneous views of their day. Nevertheless, God did not permit their imperfections to infiltrate the Scriptures that they wrote. Back in the first century, most people believed that the earth was flat. Some of the Bible writers may have believed the earth was flat. It was a common uh, belief back in the first century, that the earth was the center of our solar system. We know now that the sun is the center of our solar system and that the earth rotates around the sun. The sun doesn't go anywhere. We'll kind of get into a little piece of that here in just a minute. But... The point is that some of the biblical writers may not have been up on the latest discovery, what would be discovered and well known a century or so later. Nevertheless, just because the writers may have had some erroneous views of their own, doesn't mean that uh, God could not use them to uh, write the uh, the scriptures. So inerrancy doesn't mean that the writer had to be sinless. This is another straw man. It is not anything that inerrancy has to bear. Another thing that uh, inerrancy, inerrancy or um, Inerrancy does not mean is that the New Testament writers always quoted the Old Testament verbatim. You've seen uh, preachers. They'll be preaching along and they'll be somewhere in Romans. And they will refer to some Old Testament passage in Genesis. And, you know, a lot of Romans kind of has some, you know, some of the Genesis stuff in it. And so a preacher may quote a verse over in Genesis that pertains to the fall. And he may quote that verse kind of in his own words. He doesn't do it verbatim. And he doesn't turn over to Genesis chapter 3 and read it perfectly and accurately. He just kind of gives you a general couple of sentences about what this verse in Genesis is talking about. Is that wrong? Not anything wrong with that. Well, 
some of the biblical writers did the same thing. They're writing in the New Testament. They want to share with you something that the Old Testament says. And it doesn't come out word for word for word for word exactly what the Old Testament said. Some people look at that and say, aha, a mistake. The New Testament writer didn't get exactly what he was trying to uh, say there. Well, he didn't on purpose. He wasn't trying to give you the exact word for word verse. He was using his own words to, to describe that. One example, and we're not going to get into this much here, but in Acts chapter 15, here is James. They're at a council. They're, uh, they're into some things about what a Gentile has to do in order to be saved. And uh, he quotes a passage in Amos. Well, if you look at what James said, uh, in, uh, in Acts 15, he's quoting Amos 9. He misses it a couple of words, three or four words. But that's, that's okay. That doesn't mean inerrancy is out of the question now. That's, that's not what that means at all. So, uh, that is uh, another straw man. There, there's no such rule that says in order for us to have inerrancy, all of the New Testament writers had to quote verbatim any passage they referred to in the Old Testament. There's no such rule. Sometimes the New Testament writers quoted the Old Testament uh, in such a way as to bring out the meaning. And uh, so they're going beyond uh, what the original writer may have said in the Old Testament. Another thing about inerrancy that it does not have to bear is this criticism and another straw man. And that is that the biblical writers always use conventional grammar and syntax. There is a a classic Greek textbook, uh, Dana and Manti. It's kind of a standard work of uh, Greek syntax or Greek usage. And it lays down principles on how the Greek is to be written and, and understood. And then the New Testament studies, we, we go through and uh, we, we see uh, the norms. We, we see what uh, is going on here. And sometimes uh, a critic will read something that one of the New Testament writers said. And uh, it won't come out exactly right. And they'll say, the New Testament writer doesn't even know his, as we would say, doesn't even know his English. Doesn't even know how to use grammar. And so if you've made a mistake in grammar, you've made a mistake. And the Bible's not inerrant. But uh, again, that is basically a straw man. 
that uh, an example of that is over in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians 3, uh, with verse 1, it says, When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility of extending His grace to you Gentiles, as I briefly wrote earlier, God Himself revealed on and on and on and on. The noun is right there in verse 1. It's I. Where is the verb? A noun is to be followed by a verb. Guess what? There is no verb until you get to verse 14. In verse 14, uh, the uh, the word there is bow or fall. Uh, when I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray. That's the verb. Fall or bow. Uh, Fourteen verses later, uh, there are actually uh, books out there and chapters in books that are written about this very passage. How the New Testament writer, in this case Paul, uh, didn't use proper grammar. You don't use a verb way down the road. You use it soon after a noun. But uh, what's going on here, it may not be good grammar, but it's good communication. That's what Paul is trying to get across. He's not trying to uh, make an A in uh, grammar. So this doesn't interfere with uh, inerrancy at all. What inerrancy does not demand, another thing, that the biblical writers did not use figures of speech, phenomenal language, poetic forms, and common expressions of the day. There are some that believe that in order for the Bible to be inerrant, it must be written like a fine print of an insurance policy. We live in a very uh, scientific, uh, kind of a computer age. We're very detail-oriented about a lot of things. And so, people believe that inerrancy falls into this. Well, inerrancy doesn't demand this at all. The Bible says the uh, land of Canaan flows with milk and honey. What does that mean? It means that the land was a land of great plenty. It means it was a prosperous land. This is uh, a figure of speech. We, uh, we use figures of speech, phenomenal language, all the time. Tonight on the 10 o'clock news, uh, Pete Delkus may say uh, tomorrow morning, Sunrise will be at uh, 5.50. Sunrise at 5.50? 
Is he nuts? Doesn't he know the sun doesn't move? That's phenomenal language. Of course everyone knows that the sun doesn't come up and that the sun doesn't go down about 12 or 14 hours later and disappear out into the west. That's phenomenal language. We don't have any problem with it watching the news. We shouldn't have any problem with it when we read our Bible. Some people throw onto inerrancy again something it uh, doesn't have to bear here. Over in Matthew uh, chapter 13, Jesus talks about the mustard seed is the smallest thing or the smallest seed. Some people say we know now that the mustard seed is not the smallest seed. And that is exactly right. It's not the smallest seed. We now know that a couple of thousand years later. But that still doesn't make Matthew 13 wrong. Because comparing the mustard seed to things that was uh, very common back in the the first century. This was... uh, just a common expression of the day to compare all kinds of small stuff to a mustard seed. Common expression. They weren't trying to be ultra scientifically accurate about how small a mustard seed was. And so we need to allow the Bible writers some freedom with common expressions of the day. And that is exactly what uh, this mustard seed passage in Matthew 13 is about. Another thing that um, inerrancy does not demand, it doesn't demand that the genealogies uh, were always presented in full and orderly manner that scholars would do today. Again, we were so scientific, we're so detail-oriented. Scholars who get into genealogies today, they don't leave anybody out. Not at all. In Matthew 1, when we see the genealogy of Jesus, guess what? It's not complete. It's not complete. There are some people left out. Some people, some critics, some liberals, some moderates will read Matthew 1 and say, there it is, there's a mistake. There's the genealogy of Jesus and not everybody's listed. That is, that is quite common. It was a common custom in Hebrew genealogy to include prominent people and many times to delete not-so-prominent people. We do that a little bit in our own family tree, don't we? How's your family? How's so-and-so? And And, uh, you don't get into 
your third cousin and talk about an uncle that's in jail and uh, all the rest of it. You you don't get into detail about all kinds of family members that uh, they may or may not want to know about. That's basically the same thing as just letting them know the close, important people you want to tell them about. And the same thing works in all the family tree stuff that we are into. There's all this genealogy stuff uh, going on for the last uh, 30 or 40 years, it seems like. Uh, very popular to get, you know, really trace uh, all of the genealogy back as far as you can. And sometimes you run across <laughs> some uh, some things in your family tree that you just sort of just don't put very big in there. You you just uh, we all kind of get into that. And so typical Hebrew genealogy, they did it for their own purposes. And it was a common custom to not put everyone in there. Modern scholarship doesn't do it quite like that, but they did in the first century. And then uh, another thing that inerrancy does not demand, and that is that parallel accounts of the same event must be verbally identical. Parallel accounts of the same event must be verbally identical. Some people take Jesus' story of the cleansing of the temple and they say this is a clear indication something's wrong in the Bible. Every gospel mentions that Jesus cleansed the temple. Very familiar story. Uh, he chased the money changers out of the temple. And by the way, I think that uh, I've, I've heard all kinds of uh, application to that story in our local churches. Some believe that uh, this teaches that you shouldn't sell anything in your church. You shouldn't have a, a table out front with CDs on it. You're having a conference. You've got all kinds of speakers here and they have books. They have, you know, in the old days, albums and uh, different things. A product table, as it's called. And I know some churches that don't allow that. And they say they don't allow it because... Jesus didn't allow it. That wasn't what Jesus didn't allow. Uh, the money changers were basically short-changing people. That's what that was about. It didn't have anything to do with selling. It had to do with coming in with a dollar bill from another country and getting it exchanged to the common uh, currency of, uh, of Jerusalem or whatever. And that was, and they were taking the dollar and basically giving them back 60 cents. 
instead of a dollar in proper currency. And Jesus didn't like that. That made him mad. That's what he chased them out for. Uh, so in John chapter 2, we have the uh, story of Jesus cleansing the temple. It's also told in Matthew 21, also in Mark uh, 11, and Luke 19. Now here's the deal on that. Uh, Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19, Jesus is cleansing the temple late in His ministry, almost right before His crucifixion. Whereas John tells the story of Jesus cleansing the temple early in His ministry, very early actually, in John chapter 2. People say, aha, which one is it? Did He clear the temple early in His ministry or late in His ministry? Can't the Gospel writers make up their minds? This is a clear indication of a mistake. Who says? Why can't Jesus cleanse the temple four or five times? There's absolutely no question that He cleansed the temple just like John said early in His ministry. And then the other writers picked up on Jesus cleansing the temple late in His ministry. Absolutely. Why wouldn't He? They certainly came back after He left town. And then when Jesus came back into town, they're at it again. There's a good chance He cleansed the temple more than twice. And so this doesn't mean Inerrancy is out the window. This doesn't mean there's a mistake in the Bible. Another uh, one of these parallel accounts of the same event must be verbally identical. Superscription on the cross. I don't know if you've uh, caught this or not, but the again, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John say there was a sign above Jesus on the cross. And guess what? All four of the writers say something different was on that sign. How do we know what the sign said? I think we can figure that out. In Mark 15.26, Mark says that sign said, the King of the Jews. In Matthew 27.37, Matthew says the sign said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. In Luke 23.38, Luke says the sign said, this is the King of the Jews. And then John, in John 19.19, he said the sign said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So when you put all that together, the sign said, 
This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And some of the writers use a little of this, a little of that. It's the very same thing. Is there a witness on this corner, a witness on this corner, a witness on this corner, and a witness on this corner, and there is a traffic accident in the middle of the intersection? They all saw it. But when they're all interviewed, they're not going to see the exact same thing. They're not going to tell you verbatim exactly how that wreck occurred. They were at a little different angle. That's just human nature. That's just the way it works. The gospel writers here did not make a mistake. The critics say if there's no two alike here, somebody must be wrong. This is uh, throwing on inerrancy a burden that it does not have to bear. And so, this is a, this is a straw man once again. We'll do, uh, let's do one more. Another thing that inerrancy does not have to bear and what it does not mean is that the translations are copies of the original manuscripts be inerrant. We're talking about that definition of inerrancy. Again, it, uh, God so supernaturally directed the writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, literary style, or personal feeling, His complete and coherent message to man was recorded with perfect accuracy the very words of the original Scripture bearing the authority of divine authorship. We will uh, actually spend a little time uh, in the last session or so talking about the strengths and weaknesses and a little bit of the history of the major English translations of the Bible. We'll talk about King James, NIV, and uh, New American Standard, uh, Phillips translation, New English Bible, some of those. And we will talk about the fact that no translation is inerrant. Our definition of inerrancy, what inerrancy means, all about inerrancy has to do with the original manuscripts. And uh, that is what we mean by inerrancy. Some believe if you truly believe in inerrancy, you must also believe that the translations are inerrant as well. But that is not what we are, are saying. <clears throat> this uh, definition on the board. Inerrancy actually is 
that we can trust the Scriptures absolutely, be not deceived theologically, historically, geographically, or scientifically. The Bible will not lead us into any erroneous conclusions. The final product gives us exactly the information that God wanted us to have. Does it make a difference? Yes, it does. Theological data, scientific data. have to understand that uh, if there are mistakes in Scripture, if the science is not just right, if the geography is not just right, then we need to figure out what is mistaken and what is correct. And then you get into the question of authority. And we talked about that in the first lesson when we brought up epistemology. How do we know anything? There's three ways we know things. Reason, our own intellect. Or a church tells us what to believe. Or revelation. Scripture. If there are errors in the Scripture, we must find them. And when we look for them, we're shifting the authority from revelation to reason. And our own views change. Man is fallible. Uh, it's not gonna, not gonna get us anywhere. Either the Bible is correct or it's not. And I guess one of the great verses in all the New Testament on the nature of Scripture is Second Timothy three sixteen and 17. All Scripture is God-breathed, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so the man of God may be full-grown, completely equipped for every good work. I think that is, even though we got a few minutes left, I think we will, uh, that's a good place to stop. We talked about what inerrancy does not mean, and next time we're going to get into evidences of uh, inerrancy. What are the real evidences? What is the biblical testimony? And uh, we'll get into uh, quite a few different things there about what the Bible says about itself. So, uh, that's kind of what's going on next week. Any uh, any questions? I'm, I'm done. Any comments? Absolutely. I agree with that. And uh, the classic Greek textbook, the Dana and Matt, Matty, uh that was about principles of how Greek is to be written and understood. Uh it 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 did not uh, uh I made a note here about this. Let me find it and just uh say something about it. The grammar books, dictionaries, lexicons, they don't determine the meaning uh, or the rule, they reflect the usage. 
so that uh, Paul didn't go against any any rules necessarily. Uh, you're exactly right. That's exactly a good point. Uh, Paul was a a real learned scholar of his day, but my point was there are some people that use that particular incident where he uh, wrote some things in Ephesians 3 where they think that he made a mistake by not putting a verb after a noun. So I think with with us, there's not an issue at all. There are people that take that passage and kind of run with it and say something to the effect that uh, Paul messed up here.